If you've been a Christian a long time, you might have forgotten what it was like before you were a Christian and maybe what you thought about the Christian faith or maybe the reasons that you didn't believe in Jesus or you thought that the Christian faith was just a little bit kind of crazy. We wanted to actually go there and spend six or seven weeks looking at the questions that people have, the hurts they have, the hesitations they have, the hangups they have towards the Christian faith. Not, not sort of sweep those questions under the rug, but just say, let's put them out there and talk about them and see what scripture actually says. So we've talked about the church and self-righteous people. Uh, a lot of times people say, I'm not interested in going to church because it's full of self-righteous people. Last week we had Darren Bennett come in and Darren talked about, isn't the Christian faith a white person's religion? Isn't it a, a religion for white people? Um, and all those sermons are online. So if you're already curious, you can go and listen to them online. And today, Philip is going to preach for us. Philip uh, plays on our worship team, but he's also an ordained pastor. He pastored for seven years in New York, and we're really glad to have him. And he's going he's gonna to talk about begging to give. What about the church and money? So let's welcome him. And I'm going to pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this brother, and I pray that you would fill him with your spirit, fill us with your spirit, that as we hear your word, we might be encouraged, our, our hurts and our hesitations and our hang-ups might be answered, and you might really change us and show us really who you are. Be with us this morning. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, how's the sound? Is this okay? It sounds a little hot, hot to me, but hopefully... Carol can adjust it down for us. This morning, uh, John asked me if I would preach on the subject of money in the church, because he's been, he's been going through this series, as he said, on hurts, hesitations, and hang-ups. And, and as he just mentioned, people do have uh, hang-ups related to money in the church. In fact, uh, we have a troubled and dramatic relationship with money, I'd have to say. Uh, so we're going to look this morning at a text from Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'll start off because we, we really want to just dive into God's Word. I'm going to start off by reading this text, verses 1 through 7 of 2 Corinthians 8. So let's give our attention now to, to the reading of God's Word. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. This is the word of the Lord. We don't have an easy relationship with money. I think if we're honest, we'd have to say that our relationship with money is troubled and that there's drama. There's drama in our relationship with money. And if there's money involved in your relationship with someone else, there's going to be drama in that relationship too, I think. Ramsey uh, Solutions did a survey of a thousand adult couples and discovered in that survey that money is one of the leading causes of strife in marriages. I mean, they didn't even have to call a thousand people. They could have just called me and I could have told them that. 
anybody who's been in a relationship knows that money causes strife, it causes tension, it causes drama. Maybe in your own history, you've been in a relationship with someone, or you've been stolen from or swindled by somebody who cared more about money than they cared about you or justice or the truth. And so you've been burned, and you're suspicious when there's money involved. We don't have an easy relationship with money. It's, it, there's drama. It's troubled. Money causes us stress. How many of you have lain awake at night because you're anxious about money? I have. There's too much month and not enough money. And you wake up and you have a sweat or a panic attack and you can't fall back asleep because you're worried about where's the money going to come from? Money causes stress. How many of you have, when you've been in, in money stress, you've actually gone out because you're so down in the dumps, you've actually gone out and spent more money to buy yourself something you want to cheer yourself up? You're digging your hole deeper. That's so easy to do. In fact, uh, Pitbull, Mr. 305, has a song that's been popular uh, at the time of our lives. He says this, and I think a lot of us can relate to this. He says, I knew my rent was going to be late about a week ago. I worked my gluteus maximus off, <laughs> but I still can't pay it, though. But I got just enough to get me up in this club, have me a good time before my time is up. And we can relate to that because if you've got 100 bucks left, but you've got a $5,000 problem, that 100 bucks is not going to help you. You might as well go have fun, right? I think people have been in that position before. We have a troubled relationship with money. Our consumer culture doesn't help. There's no end of things that we want that we don't have. Apple, it's rumored, is going to release not one, not two, four new models of iPhone this year. Four. I'm going to get them all. <laughs> I'm just kidding. This one's old. I'm going to keep it till it dies. I've never broken the screen, though. I'm thankful to say that. Apple's releasing all these iPhones. And so in this culture, this consumer culture, where, where we have trouble in our relationships with money, money causes us stress and anxiety, causes problems in our marriages and so on. We're envious of the people we see on Instagram showing us their vacation in Punta Cana and their new car and all the great things they're doing. And so in that culture, giving... And sharing is not something that comes naturally or easy to us. That's not the thing that you're thinking about doing when you feel like you don't have as much as you want for yourself. And in many cases, you may not have as much as you need. And you certainly don't have as much as that guy over there has, as you're seeing on his feed day after day after day. So giving to others, giving even to the church isn't the first thing on our minds. Because, I mean, look, we have a nice building. I mean, people come in here and they think, hey, this church is doing well. They have this beautiful building and, you know, great musicians. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> why do they need to give? Why do we need to give anything? I mean, they're doing great. But, uh, but actually, we need to talk about this. We need to address some of these issues. If, if, if you're a Christian, you might wonder when the offering basket is passed, do you need to put something in? Does God expect you to? Are people looking over your shoulder? How much should you give? How often should you give? If you're not a Christian, you might just be suspicious of this, this whole thing. Maybe you remember Jim and Tammy Faye Baker back in the 1980s and, you know, the air-conditioned doghouse, you know, and things like that. And that's, that's tainted and colored your view of the church. You know, it's like a money-making enterprise and a scam. Maybe that's your your impression. But this text that we've read and that we're going to be looking at in a little bit more detail now um, is part of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, which is in the southern part of Greece. He was taking up a collection, 
And in, in his encouragement to the church in Corinth to give generously, he gives as an example the giving, the extraordinary giving of this church in the north of Greece, in Macedonia. They gave it an extraordinary and sacrificial way, even when they were going through a real hardship themselves. So take a look with me here if, if, at, at verse 2. Carol, if you can put up verse 2 if that's in there somewhere, or I'll just read it. Thank you. In a severe test of affliction, he's talking about the church of Macedonia. A severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I want you to notice the way Paul is using this language because he's using it very artistically to drive a point home. Here's a church, the Macedonian church, that is, has extreme poverty, and yet what are they abundant in? They have an abundance of joy, and that abundance of joy, even in the midst of extreme poverty, has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. My cup runneth over, Psalm 23 says. They gave according to their means and beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You guys know what beggars do. They're asking to get, not asking to give. Here are some saints who were begging not to get, but begging to give. And so as we look at this, Paul's using this language. I want us to get to the bottom of why was this church begging to give? What was going on with them? What, what motivated and prompted them to be willing to beg to give? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Why was this church in Macedonia begging to give? And maybe as we study this, God will work in our hearts so that we also will, will, like the Macedonians, learn to excel in sharing and also learn how to give more freely and generously and have an abundance of joy that overflows in a wealth of generosity. So we're going to look at this under three headings. Uh, the first is they were begging to give this church in Macedonia because of the extreme need. They were begging to give because of the extreme need. When I was a kid in the 1980s, there was a, a really devastating famine in Ethiopia. So many of you probably remember that. There was an extreme need in Ethiopia. People weren't just going hungry, they were starving. We're talking about starvation, okay? And so in order to emphasize to wealthy Americans, we don't think about Ethiopia, we don't think about East Africa. So in order to emphasize that and to get people to give for famine relief, there were pictures of young children all over the place. You could see their ribs, their bloated bellies with, with hunger. They were starving to death. There was an extreme need, and they had to paint this picture of the extreme need in order to motivate people to give. Well, Paul's raising up a collection here throughout Greece and all the places he was traveling to uh, provide support for an extreme case of need in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 11, in fact, God sent a prophet named Agabus uh, who prophesied in the days of Claudius, this Roman emperor, that there would be a famine. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And this took place in history. And so Paul, one of these uh, disciples, along with Barnabas, they went around collecting for the relief of the saints. 
And so, as I said earlier, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth to use the example of the a generous giving of the Macedonians to, to motivate the Corinthians to give. The Macedonians gave beyond their means. When Paul says that in verse 3, he's exaggerating. I mean, they can't literally give beyond their means. He's saying they gave far more than ever could be reasonably expected of them to give. He was gobsmacked by the amount that they give. But the principle is that you give according to your ability. Like it says here, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And that's the same principle in Acts 11 where they said that they would, each, each person would give according to his ability. That's a principle for us in our giving. We are to give according to our ability as God prospers us. But you'll notice that this is an ongoing uh, practice that God wants for us as Christians, if you are a Christian here today, to, to build into our lives as a habit, a habit of giving. On the first day of every week, and so that's why churches throughout history have taken up a collection. On the first day of every week, on Sundays when we come together to worship, we pass a basket or an offering plate or some churches have a collection area in the back or something. And as you're able, as the Lord prospers you, when you've met your obligations, you give something to the church that it could be used for the relief of the poor, for the advancement of the kingdom of God, and so on. This is still an ongoing thing that God tells us He wants us to be doing. On the first day of each week, set something aside. Uh, store it up as God may, may prosper you. So Paul was collecting because of the extreme need in Jerusalem, and the need today is no less extreme. I'm not even just talking about famine and, and disasters around the world, but there are. I mean, I talked about Puerto Rico the other week. You know, there's still places without electricity in Haiti and earthquakes in Mexico City. There are extreme needs in our own congregation. There are people who have faced evictions, People who have had trouble with their cars, and, and it takes thousands of dollars to get a car fixed. And again, like Pitbull, hey, I'm not going to be able to pay my rent. I might as well go spend 100 bucks in this club tonight. Look, if we're throwing $100 at a $5,000 problem, we're not really helping people. You know, when people need help, they need real help. They need $2,000. They need $5,000. They need to be able to get on their feet again. And these are our brothers and sisters that God calls us to care for as our own selves. We need to be able to do that. We should want to do that. And so that's, I think, one of the ways that God's going to mature us and grow us as a church. The needs are still extreme. People in our church have physical and financial needs that are serious. You know, existential crises. We need to be able to help them and care for them. Those are the most immediate and urgent needs that, that we can meet. But even more important, perhaps less urgent, if people aren't, aren't uh, you know, in the hospital facing, you know, uh, their last days, perhaps less urgent, but more important, of course, are people's spiritual needs, right? Because people are perishing without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. They're dead in their sins. You know, they may, Pitbull's having a great time. I mean, he talks about not being able to pay his rent, but you saw the picture. The man's rich. He's living a great life, right? He's living his best life. But the man doesn't know the Lord. He's, he's, the, he's the walking dead. And God has given us a job to do as a church. And that job, Pastor Darren last week talked about it. We should talk about it all the time. The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. What, were Jesus's, uh, what was Jesus' commission, his task that he committed to us as a people, as his body? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. We got a job to do, people, and that's to make disciples. Those disciples are out there waiting to be made. Those people, they're at Publix. They're doing their shopping. They slept in because they partied last night. They're not in here. They're out there. They're not disciples now. They're not following Jesus. And Jesus gives us the job of going out and teaching them to obey all that Jesus taught us, bringing them in here. And if that's the job that God has given us to do, then we need to have a minister, a man of God, who's going to equip us to do that, who's going to teach, teach us from, from God's Word, who's going to help us to mature into that image of Christ, someone who's going to be praying with us, someone who's going to be praying for us, like John does. I mean, you're at your job on Monday morning. John's praying for you. John is studying the Word. He's He's looking after you as a shepherd that God has put over you to care for your soul. We need a man of God to do that for us. We need to be able to provide for a minister who can minister the word and the sacraments for us. We need to be able to provide for a public worship space like this so that we, when we make disciples, we can tell them, come in and join us in worship. Join the heavenly throng assembled on earth to sing praises to the Almighty God. We need to be able to provide for this place, this this, for this household, this family of faith to come and to worship and to fellowship. We need to be able to do this. This is part of the Great Commission, and this all costs some money, of course, right? So when you're giving to the church, you're giving money that's helping us to do this job that Jesus has given us. And that doesn't mean by any stretch that John's the only one, you know, it's not like, okay, John, go do the Great Commission for us. He's, he's our proxy. We send him out to go make disciples, and we just put money in the plate. We all have that task. But we need a leader who will, who will, like I said, equip us and lead us in that, set an example for us and so on. So we've got to be able to provide, you know, for a, a minister and for a facility and for a staff and so on so that we can carry out this great commission. Because people, every person you see, C.S. Lewis said, every person you meet, every person who's ever had the breath of life in them has one of two eternal destinies. You're either looking, when you see another human being, you're looking at an, an everlasting, glorious being or an immortal horror. Every person. You know, we look at each other and we see our, you know, I got puffy eyes this morning or, you know, I'm wearing a stained shirt. I look run down or haggard. My hair doesn't look good or whatever. Look past the superficial. You're looking at someone created in God's image who's either going to live and reign with Christ in eternity and glory or someone who's going to forever be cut off from God and separated. And... That's an important task for us, to go make disciples of these people. The need is extreme, and therefore we should also be begging to give, or at least to excel in the grace of sharing what God has first given us. The second reason that the church in Macedonia was begging to give was because of all that they had first received themselves. In verse 2, again, going back to this paradoxical language of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, there was a severe test of affliction. They had extreme poverty, and yet there was an abundance of joy. I mean, what would you expect? What would be the reaction of your heart if you were facing a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty? I mean, those are the right conditions for a whole uh, harvest of bitterness and complaining and griping and moaning. If I were facing a severe test of affliction and found myself in extreme poverty, I wouldn't be full of joy. I would be 
feeling sorry for myself. And that's probably true of all of us. We'd be full of envy. We wouldn't feel good in our own skin. Life would lose its luster and, and, and a lot of its joys for us. But not so with the Macedonian church. They had this abundance of joy and were begging to give because of all that they had first received and what a wealth that was. You guys ever daydream about winning the lottery? I daydream about winning the lottery sometimes, which is pretty stupid because I'm never going to win because I never buy any tickets. <laughs> so I have no chance of winning the lottery. But still, sometimes don't you daydream about winning the lottery? And when I do that, it's easy to, be, it's easy to daydream and be a very generous person when you have $500 million. I like to think, oh, yeah, if I won the lottery, I'd give this person $10,000. Oh, I'd buy a new car for that person. It's so easy to talk about giving this person 10 grand, that person 20 grand, when I got like $499 million left for myself. <laughs> when you got plenty of money for yourself, it's easy to throw around a little bit of money here and there, right? When you've got a fortune. Well, this Macedonian church had an abundance of joy in the midst of extreme poverty because they knew what they had received was, of wor was worth so much more than any, any amount of money that they could ever have. They won the $500 million jackpot in Jesus Christ, and they knew that. And this is written all over this passage. In verse 1, Paul starts it off by saying, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He's talking about their generosity, but the point is this. Their generosity was an expression of the grace of God that they had received. God didn't give them a bunch of money. He actually let, the, he actually let them endure a severe test of affliction, and he let them continue in extreme poverty and yet they were full of joy because they knew the grace that they had received in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul, at the end of this passage, which continues into chapter 9, verse 15, he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The Macedonians knew the inexpressible gift of God that they had received, and that was the source of this joy. I love this quote by Rachel Cruz. It's, it's so apt. She says, in a heart filled with gratitude, there's no room for discontentment. And that's what the Macedonians experienced. Their hearts were full of the love and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ that filled their hearts and pushed out all discontentment, all griping, all complaining, all bitterness because they knew the inexpressible gift that they had received in Jesus Christ. Their hearts were filled with gratitude. So what is, what is this inexpressible gift? Well, Paul summarizes it succinctly in verse 9. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And as Pastor John prayed earlier, that's what the gospel is. It was a substitutionary sacrifice, right? He took our place so that we could take his place. He, the one who was rich, I mean, we're talking about God himself. Let's not, let's not make any mistake about that. Jesus, the man, is also the, the, the son of God eternally who was in heaven, full of glory, worshipped by the angels, and he was born as a man in a manger. He was rejected by his, his countrymen. He suffered. He obeyed the law perfectly, and yet he was ridiculed and taunted and stalked by the Pharisees, right? And then he died this, this horrible death. That was a substitution. Jesus Christ was taking our place. He became poor, he suffered for me and for you so that we could have eternal life and, and eternal glory and what Peter calls an inheritance that's, 
that's imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for us. So you are rich beyond your wildest dreams. And I don't mean this in kind of an abstract spiritual way. I mean this in the most tangible and physical way possible. Let me tell you what I mean. When you go back to the book of Genesis and you read the account of creation there, that is intended by God to, to, to paint, to set the context for everything you interpret about the world that you're in. When we go back to the garden, what we see is God telling us that before you were born, before any of us were here, God made the world and he made it perfect. It was beautiful. We sing about streams of abundance flowing. That's what the garden was like. The pictures that are painted for us there, those first chapters of Genesis, are of a place where there's no poverty and there's no famine, there's no drought, where you can just walk and pick up from the surface of the ground whatever you need. Pluck from any tree, any bush. You dwell in perfect safety. There is no extreme weather. It's a place of abundance that's meant for human flourishing. That's supposed to be set our expectation about what the world should be like. And yet, it's not like that at all, is it? It's a hard, scrabble life we live. Again, too much month, not enough money. Our work is toilsome. It's frustrating. We have troubled relationships with coworkers, and we feel trapped in jobs we don't like, where we don't get paid enough, and we're not appreciated for the things that we do. Life is rough for most of us, and we've come to expect that. But this is not how it was meant to be. But in, so when I say we have riches that are as tangible and physical as possible, what I mean is this. God is making all things new. And he is going to remake this broken down, beat up world. And it's going to be glorious and beautiful once again. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, you're going to live there. You're going to see it. It's never going to end. It's your eternal home. But that's not yet. And see, the Macedonians, they were begging to give because of all they had received. They were not begging to give because they were expecting to get back a hundred times whatever they give. Like some TV preachers may lead people to believe, give me a give me hundred bucks, you're going to get back a thousand. Look for it the next year somehow. They, were, they had extreme poverty and they give, gave with absolutely no expectation of getting out of that extreme poverty. They were giving away themselves, giving away their life because they had eternal life. They weren't giving because they had an expectation of, of getting back money from God. They didn't give because they thought, well, now God will answer my prayer about my health concern or about my relationship or my job. They gave because they had already gotten from God, you see. They had already been given to by God. They had already had their Lord give his life for their lives. They had already received, and that's why they were begging to. And then the third reason that the Macedonian church was begging to give was in response to that exact thing, as a, an act of devoted worship to God. They were begging to give in response to what God had first given them, as an expression of their devotion and their worship. In verse 5 of this passage, Paul tells us, tells the Corinthians about the Macedonians that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves, the Macedonians, first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. What I want you to notice about this, brothers and sisters, is that there's an order here. There's an order. You see, they first gave themselves to the Lord. 
we could go back. I mean, God first gave himself to them, right? That had been done. And they heard about that in the word of the gospel. And then in response to that, the first thing they did was give themselves to the Lord. And it was in giving themselves to the Lord that they then gave themselves to the Lord's servant, the Apostle Paul and and Titus. And through them, they gave themselves to their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem for their relief. They gave, they were begging to give in response to what God had done for them as an act of devotion and worship. So I pointed earlier, I pointed pointed us back to that great commission that Jesus gave to us. Go, therefore. That's a command. Go. Go. Do this. Make disciples. He gave us a job to do. And doesn't that mean that God wants us to do that job? Right? He gave us a job. Doesn't that mean this is important stuff? This is, our, this is job number one for us. Go make disciples. And so if Jesus gave us this job to do, and he obviously wants us to do that job, and it takes money to do that job, and God is the one who's given us our money in the first place, right? I mean, didn't he create us and give us our life? Isn't he the one who gave you that job that you were praying for? Isn't he the one who's provided for you all your lives? God's given us a job to do. He wants it done. It takes money to do it. God has given you all the money that you have. When you, out of your abundance, out of whatever, however the Lord prospers you, whatever you've decided in your heart to give, when you give that to the Lord's work so that we can do this great commission, don't you think the Lord is delighted and pleased with that? He is. Don't you think you can approach that as an act of worship? And Lord, I love you. Thank you for all you've done for me. Thank you for this, you know, Please use this and multiply it to reach the lost so that they can have eternal life. Don't you think God is delighted and pleased when you, when you give with that spirit, with that attitude? I mean, let's be honest. If God, if the goal here is to win souls, God doesn't actually need your money, does he? He doesn't need it. And so when he, what he wants is your heart. He wants your heart. The money we use to win hearts and to win minds for Jesus Christ uh, but but he, what he wants is your love and your devotion and your worship. He wants you. And that's also why he doesn't set any specific rule. 10% has been a guideline uh, for Christians throughout history. You give 10% of, of your income in one form or another to the Lord's work. Uh, but God doesn't, doesn't lay that on us as a tax. You know, this is a principle that many Christians choose to follow, but not all do. Uh, but, but God doesn't exact it as a tax on us. He wants your heart, not your money. And the money is used to win more hearts and minds to Jesus. But when you give, he's pleased with that. And guess what? Giving as an act of worship and devotion can be an important way to free your hearts from slavery to money. You see? When you, I mean, as I said at the beginning, money causes us so much stress and so much drama. And there's so many great, let's be honest, great things in the world. Four new iPhones, those are not evil or sinful. Those are good. Really, they really are to be desired. They're good phones, right? So there's good stuff. A vacation in Punta Cana, that's great. If you can take a vacation, God bless you, you know, enjoy. Get some rest and recuperation. God wants us, you know, to enjoy the good things of this world. He made it good. But the point is this. These are not ends in themselves, right? These are things that God blesses us with, but they're not the ultimate thing. But it's easy for us, to, our hearts, to become enslaved, to greed and to envy and to wanting more and more and to being discontent if we don't have all that we had our hearts set on or as much as our neighbor does. Greed, envy, discontent, grumbling. 
And so that weekly habit of giving to the church that, that Paul uh, urges on us every week, at, at the first day, set aside something, that is a good, if, if you make that part of your habit of your worship, that can help you remember at the start of every week that I don't belong to my job. I don't belong to my paycheck. I don't belong to my stuff. I'm starting this new week out on Sunday, the first day, by giving something to God. He's already given me everything. And I'm going I'm to bear that in mind as I go through this week. Our hearts break free from slavery to material things as we set our eyes on Jesus and on the eternal future that he's given to us in Christ. Because whether you're a stingy person or you're a spendy person, those, are, those can both be signs of idolatry to money. You either want the stuff and that's your God, or you want the security that money provides and that's your God. In either case, you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus, your God. And so when you put something in the basket or give online, you are freeing your heart from slavery to money and possessions a little bit. And so it's, it's good to give regularly to the church, to the Lord's work. Not to give recklessly, because again, if you, if you, if you give a thousand bucks, it doesn't mean God's going to give you 10,000 bucks. And if you needed that thousand bucks to pay your rent, well, you could be in a lot of trouble. So you need to meet your obligations, right? You need to pay your bills. If you've got bills, if you've got obligations, you have to pay those. God does not want you to, to uh, you know, renege on your obligations. You've got to pay for your transportation and your housing and your food and your clothing. You've got basic things you have to pay for, right? But most of us have lots of extra stuff that we actually don't need, that we think of as kind of necessary, but it's not really, let's be honest. And when we go to the supermarket, we buy a lot of extra stuff. We don't really, I don't need those ho-hos. <laughs> I can put those back, you know. There's a lot of stuff that we buy that we don't actually need. It's like, hey, I got to buy food. Yeah, well, I don't have to buy that food. <laughs> I could buy something nutritious. So it would be good for us as a spiritual discipline, just between us and the Lord, to look at what we have, what we're spending on, and what we're giving to the church, because it does cost money to provide a living for the pastor and for his family to support him and to support, to provide for this place and to do the work of the ministry so that we can make disciples and fulfill the Great Commission. The Macedonians gave to that, that struggling church in Jerusalem where people were starving, unfortunately. We're not in that position, I'm thankful to say, but did you know that there are other churches that are supporting our little struggling church? Right, we're a church plant. So there are churches around the area and around the country full of Christians that you don't even know who are paying money so that we can be here in this building. Did you know we're not paying for this ourselves? Other Christians and other churches are doing that for us. And they're paying to support our minister so that we can have a man of God to preach the word to us every week. So just like the Macedonians were providing for the church in Jerusalem, other Christians are providing for us right now. But our goal as a church should be to grow both in numbers and in our maturity as Christians who are regular in our giving so that we can support ourselves and even be in the same position as those other churches to support other churches that are being planted here and around the world. That's what we should be growing to do, brothers and sisters. And so when you join the church as a member, one of those promises that you'll be asked to make is, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? And that's between you and God. Nobody's, Pastor John's not going to say, uh, you know, he did, he's not going to hit you up and say you didn't put enough in the offering. But it's between you, it's to the best of your ability as you determine in your heart and in your mind. But we can look to this example of the Macedonian churches, which Paul held before the Corinthians and God in his providence 
And giving us this letter holds up to us as an example for their generosity. They were begging to give because of the extreme need, an extreme need that still exists today. And because of all that God had already done for them, and he has done the same for us today, and as a response of devoted worship to that gracious God, which is the same response that we should have today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We cannot thank you enough for all that you've done for us, Lord. But I pray that by your grace, you will give us grateful hearts and open hearts, Lord. Hearts that long to see the lost come to know you. Hearts that uh, are, are eager to see our church established permanently as, a, as its own church, self-supporting. I pray, Lord, that you'll give us a fervent desire to reach the lost, Lord, and that you'll, you'll inflame us with, with a zeal and longing to see your word go forth. Lord, I pray for all those who may be struggling financially. Uh, I pray that you'll provide for them, that you'll help them out in their struggles and their worries, Lord. Please help us to have the discipline to get our own financial houses in order so that we won't have anxieties about money, so that we'll not only be able to provide for ourselves, but to have extra to give to those who are in need. And we ask that you will grow our church by bringing new people in, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Philip. Let's thank him. You know, it, it's amazing to even say, uh, what would it be like for this church to plant a church five years down the road? What would it look like for us to say, let's identify an area, let's raise up a team from within us, and let's plant another church? That would be amazing. And even, even in our limited resources, even though this church is small, we could do it. We could do it if we all participated and said, we want to do that. And I think that's an amazing goal for us to even think about doing down the road. And as we think about the people that have supported us, literally people have given thousands and thousands of dollars to get this church off the ground. That could be us five years from now. And as you begin to think about the generosity of other people to help us even start this church, it makes you generous. One of the most amazing situations I was in was about five years ago, I was in West Africa and I was preaching in this little tiny apostolic church, you know, fans blowing, no air conditioning, and they sang their hearts out to the Lord. And they asked me to preach, my, me and another pastor were there, and I preached a sermon for these, uh, these wonderful people. And at the end of the sermon, they took a collection to honor my friend and I for coming. And it was just coins. It was just coins. They, they didn't have anyone wealthy in the church, but yet they gave to honor us. It was so humbling. They took all the coins and they put them in this little cloth and they wrapped the top and they tied a little bow around it and they handed me this little bag of coins. They had given generously out of their poverty. And I looked at my friend, the other pastor, and he took the microphone and he said, thank you so much for giving to us. We are so blessed by your generosity, but we actually want to give this back to you. And we want to give this to you that you might identify widows and orphans in your community and use this to feed them. And they were so honored that we were generous back to them that the entire church stood up and applauded. And it was this wonderful moment where the generosity of God was on display as they gave to us and we gave back to them and then they got to give to widows and orphans in their community. And that's the spirit we're being called into because that is what Jesus has done for us. Out of his glory, he came to this earth, 
He made himself poor in order that we might become rich in him. Amen. He deserves all glory and honor. He could just command us and say, you will give. But he doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to give myself to you. And so he deserves all glory and honor and praise. And yet he comes and lays his life down and generously, generously gives himself to us. Amen. Let's stand and close and sing and you deserve it.